it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Hope you're having a fantastic week. It's only going to get better, I am sure. And uh, keep it here. 1 866 408 7669. We'll be following all the events. We know Kamala Harris has got a big meeting today. We'll discuss some of that. Uh, and we'll continue to update you on what's happening in the world. Uh, Kaylee McEnany is going to be joining us at the bottom of the hour. That'll be great. And also, uh, we are going to be, uh, you can also write me, briankillme.com, and get the podcast at briankillme.com, you just sign up uh, wherever you get your podcast. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. If it gets to be much smarter than us, it'll be very good at manipulation because it will have learned that from us. And it knows how to program, so it'll figure out ways of getting around restrictions we put on it. It'll figure out ways of manipulating people to do what it wants. Jeffrey Hinton uh, talking. He's one of the founders and godfathers of AI, talking about the rise of it. Front and center for the Biden administration, Kamala Harris is tasked with leading a push with all the AI inventors and some other staffers on setting up guardrails for uh, artificial intelligence. Does anyone feel optimistic that she can handle this latest task? Me neither. Number two. New York and Chicago, they are self-declared sanctuary cities. So you would think they would be asking for me to be busing migrants to their cities. This is not a Texas problem. This is a United States problem. Greg Abbott weighing in, now talking about race, talking about illegal immigrants, help needed and none is coming. That's the state of the undoing ongoing calamity at our border. Cities are overwhelmed with illegal aliens. Border communities are crushed. Private border farms trampled. And there are cries of racism from mayor, from one mayor to a governor of Texas. We have it all. Number one. We have credible information that this uh, possible uh, criminal activity took place. I can't verify whether or not it's really a criminal activity, but I do have a faith in the whistleblowers. That is Chuck Grassley. Listen up. Long rumored, often accused. Now could there be proof of Joe Biden's family operation to change our foreign policy to fill Biden's pockets. Whistleblower comes forward. The FBI is subpoenaed for documents. Separately, Hunter Biden seems to, seems as though he's going to be charged for tax and or gun issues uh, that have been plaguing the president's son for four years. So this is the news that came across yesterday. Everyone always says, now Biden's out there trading on the family name. What's the actual business? What are they trading on? If, he, if Trump goes and wants to open up a, a business in Scotland, golf course. Saudi Arabia, hotel. Turkey, hotel. New York City, towers. Commercial real estate. So they have something to sell. You might not like it. It affects foreign policy. I don't feel good. Whatever you want. But for the Bidens, it's selling influence. But they go, what influence? Because he's no longer vice president. In between jobs, president, he, what influence did he have? Well, he's got a ton of influence. He's known these same people for 40 years making the laws. But nothing drew directly back to him in a way that everyone had to pay attention. Tony Bobolinsky saying he was getting a certain percentage of deals that he was in part in on. We got it, but didn't seem to get get traction. 
But now you have a whistleblower coming forward, some say a stunning development, to the House Oversight Commission Committee. They issued a subpoena on Wednesday for an FBI file that a whistleblower said links President Biden to a criminal scheme involving money for policy decisions. Man, that would be unprecedentedly evil. The tip is a potential breakthrough for investigators looking into Joe Biden's uh, uh, increasing role in the family enterprise, in the businesses. Now, the New York Post speculates on businesses that we know about, thanks to the laptop. Could he uh, have a link? Could this whistleblower have a link to Mexico? Where we know the president had breakfast with Carlos Slim and well, the one of the associates of Hunter Biden, Jeff Cooper. Carlos Slim, one of the richest men in the world, from Mexico and Russia. The Moscow mayor has a relationship with Devin Archer as well as Hunter Biden, they met at Lake Cuomo over in April. Could they have done a deal back in 2014? Could this be something that was reignited? Romania, a Romanian businessman, Gabriel Popovicu, uh, uh, in early 2015, um, he, they helped him. Hunter Biden was his lawyer, helped him challenge a corruption conviction. What do they want in return? Well, it turns out, on the calendar, Hunter Biden, second son, you'll have breakfast with my dad. Uh, before you return, November 15, 2016. Did that the deal that I'm doing? What about China? Know about him flying with Air Force Two. You know about uh, the CEFC energy company linked directly to the government. Now, Ian Sams, the White House spokesperson for oversight and investigation, says uh, for five years, Republicans in Congress have been lobbed, uh, lobbying, unfounded, unproven, politically motivated attacks against the president and his family without offering evidence for their claims. Well, that thing could have changed. Here's more from Grassley. Cut to. What kind of criminal uh, scheme did Joe Biden supposedly all, participate in? All I can answer to you is that uh, that from the uh, credible uh, whistleblower, we get this information. The document exists, and then we'll have to get the document to be able to answer your question. We haven't gotten it yet. Now, will the FBI give it? They have to give it, right? Subpoena. What's the big deal? If it's corruption with the president of the United States, got to give it up. What do you mean you got to hold on to it? Now, if this was the previous president, it would have been leaked already by the FBI itself. According to a source within the FBI, there's a document out there that proves that uh, the Trump family was linked to some type of international scheme that affects policy. Believe me, we would have heard it. Now, I keep telling you about the double standard. You hear about it. But when it's so egregious, I just want to point it out. Here's more from Grassley. Cut three. Do you believe that the subpoena will also ultimately be successful and Chairman Comer will be able to obtain this document? What level of confidence do you have? It'll be successful unless the White House classifies this document. And uh, they better not because I know it's a non-classified document. But they could keep me from getting it by classifying it. How evil would that be? You classify it rather than give it up after it's requested? Is that allowed? Brett Tolman, longtime uh, uh, U.S. attorney, was uh, was speculating last night on what this could mean and what, what could be next. Cut nine. 
A document like this really comes down to one thing in my mind, and this is probably an FBI 302 investigative report. I say that because the whistleblower, in order to make the connection and to assess that it's credible information like, like Senator Grassley has, has assessed, means that they had to have sat down with whoever's providing the information, and you're not going to do that without making sure you get every detail you can from someone. So we'll see. Uh, We'll get the analysis. I'll be talking about that with Kaylee McEnany. We'll see how this moves forward. I don't want a witch hunt. I would not be prescribing this a witch hunt. Remember the Whitewater thing became such a distraction. They stumble onto the Monica Lewinsky thing. Believe it or not, as embarrassing as it was for Bill Clinton, it changed his fortunes for the positive. And I think if it looks like you're just going down the pike to try to find something on an 80-year-old president, I think that's a problem. But if you could talk about how it affects policy, already James Comer outlined six different decisions that could have been influenced by investments that have turned up in the Biden family. So let's talk about the border crisis. Title 42 is going to evaporate in seven days. We are seeing a big surge at the border already. Now, I know you're thinking, I know El Salvador, Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, now Brazil. Well, it turns out it's getting more complicated. We're getting people from India, China, Brazil, Turkey, Turkey. I know it's a terrible government, but isn't there a way to apply for citizenship instead of sneaking in? Uzbekistan, Senegal, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Somalia, and Egypt. In Afghanistan, if you can get out, you probably came through the border. And then you pay somebody to get you up to the border, and then you hope to be able to cross the border. And right now we have a situation they can't possibly address this adequately. Now we have a mayor in New York City in particular that says it's racist that the white Republican governor of Texas keeps sending people to black cities. No, they're asking to go to cities because they know they're in the border cities in Texas. You're kind of in the middle of nowhere. So they want something different. So here is Jonathan Fahey. Uh, Fahey, He is uh, the DHS Deputy Assistant Secretary under Trump. Cut 17. Everything this administration says is either an outright lie, deliberately misleading, or utter nonsense. And, you know, and what the press secretary says is, is... typically just utter nonsense on this. Of course, it's not down. It's, it's, we're going to be looking at hundreds of thousands of people per month coming across with no plan to deal with them, no plan to deal with the expenses. And you see what's going on in New York right now. This is not just a border problem. This is a, a resource problem for every community where the illegal immigrants land. And there is no plan to deal with it. And I don't see anything changing, at least in the next two years. All right, we're going to take a short time out because uh, the numbers are pretty staggering. Listen to this. Over the last 10 days, 7,700 arrests per day. 7,700. Title 42 ends seven days. 700% increase over normal days during the Obama and Trump administration. We've just begun to accept it. I don't. We have lying propagandists running this country in the DHS right now. That according to Border Patrol Union President. They say don't believe one word this administration saying. How can you possibly influence a union that has that little respect for you? I ask you, Mayorkas, you listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, we'll talk about AI, too, stuff we don't know. And then we'll have Kaylee McEnany at the bottom of the hour. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. 
fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. You've spoken out saying that AI could manipulate or possibly figure out a way to kill humans. How could it kill humans? Well, eventually, if it gets to be much smarter than us, it'll be very good at manipulation because it will have learned that from us. There are very few examples of a more intelligent thing being controlled by a less intelligent thing. And it knows how to program, so it'll figure out ways of getting around um, restrictions we put on it. It'll figure out ways of manipulating people to do what it wants. Pretty amazing. That's Jeffrey Hinton. They call him the father of AI. Why? He had this small company that had such promising advances, AI. Google bought it. And then with it, they enabled to launch Chatbot, GBT, and uh, now there's Bard and others that are out there. And there's, there's big talk about from Elon Musk on down who helped found the whole thing saying uh, this could get out of control. We need regulation. About, I think, 40 people signed off on it. Another 19 uh, want to uh, get together and start collaborating on it. I worry that if we limit ourselves, that China will get the lead. They do not have our, uh, our best interests in mind. Here's more from Je- uh, Jeffrey Hinton, cut 19, cut 19. It's not clear to me that we can solve this problem. Um, I believe we should put a big effort into thinking about ways to solve the problem. I don't have a solution at present. I just want people to be aware that this is a really serious problem and we need to be thinking about it very hard. I don't think we can stop the progress. I didn't sign the petition saying we should stop working on AI because if people in America stop, people in China wouldn't. It's very hard to verify whether people are doing it. Very interesting. So he's out there fighting it. He said, if I step away, people look at me more sincerely as somebody who's really concerned. That's why he doesn't want to stop it. I never heard of stopping progress. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But I understand the feeling of wanting to, you know, uh, stop the Industrial Revolution. You know, stop the advent of cars if you sell horses. You know, uh, the people were reluctant to get the Internet. They thought it would hurt libraries. With, when it comes to books, they said, we don't want to do the e-books. It's going to destroy the book industry. It didn't happen with any of that. I was just struck by if it was just me, I would never say stop anything. But when Elon Musk and all those others said, I'm telling you, they could be more powerful than us. And Jeffrey Hinton said, I thought in 50 years they'd have the ability to be more power than us, AI. But now he says it's just days away. So that's pretty key. Other things that might affect it, for example, believe it or not, the Internet could be destroyed by AI. Look at what Neil deGrasse Tyson said. Cut 20. Part of me wonders, maybe AI will create such good fakes that no one will trust the Internet anymore for anything. And we just have to simply shut it down. Maybe it's the final nail of a coffin in the Internet. 30 years, it was a good run from the early 90s to the early 20s and 2020s. Now it's time for the next thing. That could be the greatest gift of AI to the Internet. The Internet gets a vote of no confidence from us. I know he's an astrophysicist, but I think that's one of the one of the weird things to bring up. Uh, you know, I, there's always going to be a Google search engine. If it gets outdated, it gets outdated. But people are going to not trust anything that goes there. And I think that maybe there'll be a way to say this is AI generated. This isn't. You might want to say uh, maybe there's going to be rules, for example, that – You'll say that this program was generated by AI. The comedy writers were AI. You have to say that up front. Maybe that should be a rule. Senator James Langford was making the rounds with Senator Cinema on this. Cut 23. 
All the American public are talking about artificial intelligence. This has been an issue for a long time. I'm glad the administration is finally engaging on this. Uh, it needs to be addressed. Uh, and it's not just an administrative policy, but it's learning what's the benefits, what are the harms, and you know, try to get ahead of it. Uh, we've all seen what's happened in multiple areas uh, where you allow technology to get ahead of what the regulatory state uh, really is on it to be able to make sure that we're managing a good thing and making sure it stays for good. It's not used for evil. Right. Uh, let's do that. So talk about not used for good and used by the right people for the right reasons. Kamala Harris, again, they're trying to prop her up and say she's been mislabeled for two and a half years. You don't know the real Kamala Harris. Well, today she's going to be leading discussion in a meeting with Google, Microsoft, OpenAI, and Anthropic uh, CEOs. What are they going to be talking about? All this. And what does regulation look like? Gina Raimondo, maybe the most smartest person in the administration, will be there. Jeff Zeitz, his new chief of staff. Jake Sullivan will be there. Uh, Arati Palmakar, the director of Office in Science and Technology, will be there. And we'll see if we can get guardrails up. They, they defy logic to think the government could keep up with this and regulate this. But if you use the experts and they could do it themselves, I think that would be fine. But just understand, too, if we do anything that allows us to fall behind China, they'll export that technology, again, considering with their Belt and Road initiatives. Barack Obama was lecturing about the disinformation. You wonder where he is. He was out there lecturing, talking about it. He doesn't really get specifically into it, but I thought you should get his perspective. He put this on Twitter, Cut24. We're at an inflection point with rising inequality, deepening polarization, and widespread disinformation. I plan to keep shining a light on the biggest challenges that democracy faces. That includes revitalizing our political institutions, coming up with more inclusive and sustainable models of capitalism, and creating a stronger democratic culture. But it also means creating an information environment that reinforces rather than erodes our democracy. All right, so he's talking generically. He's not talking like he knows AI. I want to talk a little bit about the Ukraine war. It looks like a total false flag operation with the drone being struck down at the Kremlin. It was not the Ukrainians. I know last week I read a report like that. The Ukrainians say, no, we basically, they're saying, I don't have a drone that can get there. So if you see the video, it's got every angle on it. Uh, and we know that Moscow's buried in debt. So maybe they want to start motivating their people to think that if we don't act, uh, Kiev is going to attack us in Moscow. We won't be safe now. Meanwhile, they've lost 85,000 people in battle, 200,000 casualties, and now they're about to try to absorb a big surge. Here is uh, here's uh, John Kirby talking about the U.S. involvement in this and what Russia is propagating. Cut 26. I can assure you that there was no involvement by the United States in this, whatever it was. Um, and we had nothing to do with this. So Peskov is just lying there, pure, pure and simple. Right. We'll see. Uh, we don't think the, I don't think the I don't think Kiev could get to Russia. And when you think Russia's got missile defense everywhere. So I am surprised by that. And uh, John Kirby weighing in, they were caught by surprise by it. But I do think things are blown up in Crimea. And I do think that is the Ukrainians. They want to start loosening up these targets, taking back substantial landmass. And that's it. And if you want to factor in China in after that to get a peace deal, that's more plausible possible. Haley McEnany's next. You'll listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here.
the talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I would hesitate to take uh, everything that uh, The Hill says at face value. Uh, there has been a, uh, a clear track record of, in many instances of uh, transcripts uh, being um, intentionally taken out of context, being intentionally uh, uh, misrepresented, uh, and so we don't know uh, what exactly uh, the intent or what's going on here. But as I said, uh, we've uh, seen the inquiry and we will review it appropriately. So that's that's Vaden, uh, Vedent Patel of the State Department. He's a State Department spokesperson responding to, I believe, the request for, which is going to be a subpoena eventually, I think, for the Secretary of State to come in and try to uh, and try to explain himself when he said there was no interaction between Hunter Biden and uh, and his and the Secretary Blinken when he was Deputy Secretary. He said, oh, there was no interaction. That's how it was part of his confirmation, according to Ron Johnson. Obviously, the emails revealed there was a lot of interaction. In fact, I would leap to the fact that I believe that he gets along better with Hunter than he does Joe. Kelly McEnany here, co-host of Outnumbered, gets set to do that show. A book is now out, A Serenity in the Storm, Living Through the Chaos by Leaning on Christ. Uh, Kaylee, welcome. Your response to some of the inaccuracies, clearly, you saw the emails. It's not even up for conjecture or debate. It's not. And one of the things that I was so struck by was you have Blinken who says, you know, Mike Morell's testimony confirms everything I'm saying. Um, and that was with regard to, uh, you know, him not being a part of the 51 foreign intel folks who said that this was Russian disinformation, the laptop. But Mike Morell's testimony said he was integral to it. So the testimony completely contradicts Blinken. And then with regard to the emails, you're exactly right. There's emails from Hunter Biden to the wife of Blinken saying, hey, what's Blinken's private email? And then there were multiple email correspondences. That's what we know of. So there is more here. And this cannot be written off as just nothing to see here because there are facts, hard facts that contradict uh, the platitudes coming from the State Department. And what you're referring to is Benjamin Hall asked the question, Anthony yes. Blinken, about Mike Morell saying that you were the one behind who helped round up the 51 intel experts that called the laptop uh, Russian disinformation. He goes, no, that's not what his testimony is. Right. So <laughs> you got to turn around and go, yes, it is. And then Mike Morell, I've not seen him. He doesn't have a CBS contract anymore. But Mike Morell was all over the Libya situation. He was the disinformation there about – uh, about the attacks, so he was got he has respect in the Bush world. Mm-hmm. He used to brief uh, George W. Bush in the times of most perilous times after the nine eleven attacks, and then he stayed and briefed Obama. So he, you know, he's been on our show. I like I like having him on, but it is a complex situation that he's weaving. And when asked about it, he said, "Well, I wanted to see Joe Biden win. Really, you yeah. you put your <laughs> reputation on the line to make sure Joe Biden. And by the way, he didn't get a job out of it." Right. All 51 of these guys. I mean, they were essentially Biden surrogates. And you expect that among maybe media personalities or political appointees who've worked in the West Wing who are political in nature. But you don't expect that, to your point, among credible intel officials who have respect across both sides of the aisle. So it's really astonishing when you look back and all 51, to your point, signed up despite the reputational damage that would come, the facts that would come out later they just signed their name to support a Joe Biden president. Instead of really looking into it, and you would think CIA guys like Liam Penn is 70-something years old. Yeah. All you have to do is pick up the phone and say, hey, Joe, uh, is this your son's laptop? Because I'm about to sign off on this. I'll just stay out of it. Right. But don't let me ruin my reputation. I was chief of staff, CIA director, secretary of defense. I mean, come on. I'll help. I want you to win, but I can't do that. Like Dan Hoffman said, why would I sign this? I don't know anything about exactly. it. Exactly. Walked away from it. Exactly. And this laptop, I mean, it has 
hundreds and hundreds of pictures of Hunter Biden, emails between Hunter Biden and his father, among others. Um, so that wouldn't cause it would cause just a, a common sense individual like myself to pause and say, hey, this is likely Hunter Biden's laptop. Like, what did they all believe that this was a Russia AI generated deep fake that was full of pictures of Hunter Biden? I mean, it defies reality to think that uh, they just signed on and truly believe this was disinformation. So when the girl has his kid, when the woman who used to be a stripper has his kid, she's now four. Her name is Navy Joan. He goes, I don't really remember. I don't remember if. And then when asked about, is that your laptop on a book tour? He has a book tour. Knowing that he's, he goes, I don't really remember. It's my laptop. <laughs> don't remember. Who? It's almost taunting us. Yeah. He's taunting us with, you can't touch me. So why are you even trying? Who doesn't remember conceiving a child? I mean, this is, it's right. really something. And, then, and he gets away with this. And he's forced to take a paternity test. And it turns out that, yes. It's his kid. Yes, it is his child, that poor four-year-old girl. Um, but that case, I mean, really interesting. There's been so many redactions of Hunter Biden's financial records. And if this judge can force transparency and wipe away some of the redactions, who knows the connection that it may have to the broader interest in Hunter Biden's business dealings. Uh, Kaylee McEnany, our guest. Kaylee, did you have this story about the whistleblower coming forward about possibly the president uh, using business uh, – uh, having his businesses affect policy. Was that on for Outnumbered? Was that out? Yes. Um, so we it was not on for Outnumbered yesterday. We are doing it today. Um, it broke, I think, later in the day, and the New York Post had some additional details. But it's something. You know, I, I, I pause here because the allegation is so stunning that there's this document that outlines a direct connection between Joe Biden delivering a policy decision in exchange for cash. I, I don't know why it would be outlined in a public document. The document, the FD, I forget the numbers at the end, but it's an FBI document that when you receive confidential in, information, it's a way to memorialize that information in an official form. So, you know, it, it's easy to um, be hyped up about it now, but until I see the document, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant. I, I hope it's not being overblown. Right. But the one thing that gives you credibility is Senator Grassley. I want people yes. to hear. I mean, here, here he is. Cut one. We have credible information that this uh, possible uh, criminal activity took place, uh, and I can't verify whether or not it's really a criminal activity, but I do have a faith in the whistleblowers that bring it to me that this document exists. We have a rough idea of what's in the document, <laughs> and uh, I just want to do what congressional oversight uh, responsibilities I have to see what the FBI's and the DOJ's done to follow up on it. See, I don't know why people are doubting that the FBI will give up this document uh, because the FBI has to, I thought, but they say they're not going to. Right. And Grassley said his biggest fear is that an otherwise unclassified document might all of a sudden become classified. Look, I've said this before. Doesn't that say a lot? If all of a sudden you classify a document, what are you keeping from me? It says a lot. I mean, when people talk about the deep state, it's easy to think that this is like something that is, you know, a dark conspiracy theory in the corners of the Internet. But we began this segment talking about the 51 Intel officials who hook, line and sinker bought into a fake narrative and essentially swung an election. Um, that's the deep state at work. So these same intel guys, the top echelons of the FBI, 
I don't know their political viewpoints. I know they've made really bad decisions before that always seem to go in one direction. So I'm not confident we'll see the light of day with this document. Uh, but Grassley's confident in this whistleblower. And I would just note an extra layer of credibility right. here. This whistleblower is distinct from the IRS whistleblower who's alleging that there has been certain favoritism in the Biden investigations. So, Kaylee, uh, you have a new book out. It's called Serenity in the Storm, fresh off your bestseller. Uh, so you must have been writing this through your pregnancy and through the birth, uh, your, your second child. That's right. It was really special. Um, I was pregnant the entire time I wrote this book. The Dobbs decision came down. Um, it was an incredible journey through my pregnancy, living the life issue quite literally, and then watching the monumental change at the court. So I wrote about all of these cultural issues and issues like Afghanistan and Ukraine. And the broader uh, theme is there's chaos in our country, in our world. Um, and I think faith can bring us above uh, the real divisions that we have and some of the problems. Why do you think so? Um, I think when you look at the fact that one in three young girls are considering suicide, according to the CDC, the ills um, on social media, the violence in our schools, it's all an outgrowth of a generation and an American people that have decided to leave behind faith in God, patriotism, tradition, all values that made our country great. And when you set those aside, it's no wonder there's this real um, misery, almost depression setting in among a younger generation because they look to self rather than the creator of self. Right. And what happened is if you don't have a main objective, for example, I imagine there would be less depression when you live your life in order to go shoot your own meal uh, to go uh, find out, uh, get shelter, your focus is on survival. Mm-hmm. And if you have a, if you're caught in a fire or a flood, you survival. I got to go get a hotel. I got to get clothes. I got to go talk to me. You, you don't really worry. You have an objective and a goal. I think a lot of people are like, you know, my job's okay. Family's all right. I'm still waiting to meet somebody. And they think to themselves, you know, what, what's the mission? I don't think my country's that special. In fact, I'm, I hear it every day. It's not. You know, what is the mission? You know, with, I don't think I can be the next Elon Musk. So what difference does it real make? There's a lot of people who, who are rudderless. And, and underappreciate the freedoms we have that are embedded in our country. I looked um, and, and the fact the church is growing fastest in Afghanistan, Iran, China, Syria, all of these places. What church to is to in Iran? The Christ- Christianity. Really? Oh, yes. Iran is, I believe, the number one or number two place where Christianity is growing. No. And that's the thing. Apostasy is punishable by death. But I talked to Pastor X. He's a leader in the underground church there. Um, in the last, I believe it's 10 years combined, more converts have been seen than in the last 13 centuries combined. So people see, and I talked to a woman who's whose testimony is amazing, and Taliban-led Afghanistan. We had to talk via Zoom. I had to call her by a different name, and she said people recognize light and darkness. They saw the American soldiers. They associated them with freedom and with faith, and they see the darkness that's come on their country in Iran and Afghanistan, and they are so receptive to the message of truth. See, that's the one thing that really hurts uh, more than anything else the way we left Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. People go, well, the country's chaos. They're not used to democracy. Okay, fine. You know what they did? In Kabul, in these different areas, they got the sense of what it was like to put girls in school, to give them a sense of mission, to give a sense of freedom, have a good day and a bad day, and not be afraid they could be arrested when possible. Our presence there gave them a 20-year window to what their life could be, and we didn't want anything in return. We didn't even take the rare earth, even though it's every Democrat's goal to make everything green. The rare earth is the engine behind this going to make everything green. Look at Iraq. We're in. We left. We just tried to show you what representative government's like. We didn't take anything, even though President Trump wanted to take the oil. 
uh, until we're paid off. And I understand that school of thought. He's like, can we just get a percentage of the oil after all what we've already given the country? But we didn't. We just left. We just and left. when we're done, when the when dust settles, you could get mad. And then you say, wait a second. They did exactly what they said they were going to do. Mm-hmm. We showed you how we ran your elections. We pulled out. And what it is is not – you don't have to copy us, but is it every – if every human's goal is to be free to find out what you can be in your life, this is the only government that's going to make let that happen. Yet 2,448 service members is what we lost in Afghanistan, and their sacrifice was not in vain. Uh, the way we left was dishonorable. It was horrible. And I not worthy of the people that fought there. Not worthy of the people that fought there. Joe Biden had ample warning from the intel community – Ample warning from his generals that this would collapse, and yet he did it anyway because he wanted a photo op on September 11th and a headline saying, out of America's longest war. And it was a tragedy. How do you feel when he says the Trump administration left me no choice? False. False. I've talked to several of my former colleagues. They said that there would be a a small stay-behind force of special ops guys taking all the equipment out, not pulling the military out before the civilians. There was a plan. Conditions-based. Conditions-based withdrawal that was thrown into the trash can by Joe Biden, who wanted a photo op. But the sacrifice of those soldiers, it was not in vain. Um, Because I can tell you, a lot of the people there now recognize the difference between light and darkness. And I do think it's changed many lives in Afghanistan. For somebody who's always so upbeat and positive, you've, you've had a lot of turmoil. That job as press secretary was unbelievably combative. It was. And then when you were at CNN... Every yeah. time you were on, there was a brawl, yeah. right? They did not want to hear what you had to say. That was almost worse because at least at the podium, I had a microphone that was loud and I could, you know, rise above the noise. But at CNN, you had like eight microphones of leftists screaming at you and you could get like five words in edgewise. So how do you convey a message in five words? That was the challenge at CNN. So now you have a situation where the president of the United States is going to go on CNN for a town hall. Um, and now if this was 2015, it would be interesting. Yeah. But from 2015, 2016 to 2021, they don't let him finish a sentence. Exactly. They call everything a lie. They set up and make sure that all these so-called town hallers hate him. Do you think this is going to be different for him? I don't think it will be fair. I, I don't uh, trust CNN, to your point, stacking town halls, stacking audiences. They have an agenda. They can't afford to lose him, though. They, they can't afford to lose him. And look, the president, you know, good for him for saying, like, look, I want to put my message out there as broadly as I can, reach communities that might not otherwise hear my message. Yes, but I just worry this will be a setup. Um, you know, past is prologue, right? And the past of CNN and their treatment of Republican candidates has not been uh, particularly fair or, um, you know, just in any way. In any way, uh, unless you're a Republican that wants to criticize Trump, you're not going to get any time. Larry Hogan could get a fair town hall there. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, so can Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney yes. could do six hours. Yes. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and and for you in particular, I'm going to find this intramural battle between Republicans fascinating. Do you look for DeSantis to get in and close that gap? What do you think is going to happen? The gap's going to close. I'm confident of that. Um, you know, just anecdotally, going around the country, I've been – Everywhere. I've been in so many states in the last two and a half years. There are a lot of people who recognize Florida as the model for freedom. So he's going to get in. I do think the gaps will close. I do think, and I could be wrong here, President Trump does show up at the debate. And I think everything's going to depend on that Fox News debate and the debates thereafter. That's where we'll see real movement in the polls because it takes big events to really shake up the polls. The Trump indictment certainly did. DeSantis entering the race, I think, will. And then those debate moments. And then it's a state-by-state race. Right. You know, National polling is, is quite... Literally meaningless. It's it's Iowa, it's New Hampshire, it's South Carolina, as you know. And I've always liked Nikki Haley, and uh, there's very few people in the world I respect more than Tim Scott. 
Yeah. And Mike Pence is a quality human being with great experience. So I think it's going to be quality on the stage. I think it's worthy of America. I don't know what's happened on the left because they're refusing to challenge somebody that clearly needs to be challenged. Yeah. And look, I I know Fox News will give a fair debate. I'm certain of that. They they did in 2016. I do hope um, the RNC and Ronna McDaniel are looking very closely at which outlets they will allow uh, subject the candidates to questions because a CNN debate. Their one goal will be mudslinging. CNBC was not much better. Nope, not much better. Kayla, congratulations on the book. It's so important. It's out there. Uh, Serenity in the Dream, Living Through the Chaos by uh, Leaning on Christ. Congratulations, Kaylee. Thank you so much, Brian. CNN outnumbered a few hours. Back in a moment. (laughs) Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. I think it's still possible. I, you know, I, I think, you know, the the, the case of um, of avoiding a recession is, in my view, more likely than that of having having a recession. But it's not it's not that the case of having a recession is. I don't rule that out either. It's it's possible that we will have what I hope would be a mild recession. That is Jerome Powell, and Jerome Powell raised rates for the tenth straight time, and it affects all of us. And they say that's the only way to slow the economy to get us to stop shopping, stop buying houses. Stop renting real estate, uh, commercial real estate. Uh, stop going on vacation because our economy gets too hot. And if our economy is too hot, it's going to make inflation go too high. So it is still at 5 6%. It was at 8%. President wants credit for de- decreasing at 40%. That's unbelievable to me. Hopefully you're not falling for that. He jacks up inflation intentionally or not. And then when he gets it down half to where it was, he wants credit for getting it down 40%. Nuts. I, I'm extremely worried about the economy. Uh, people keep pointing to the job numbers. You know what I point to? How many in the workforce were actually working? And right now it's at 62 point something percent. We need that around 68, 70%. The people that can work are working to get out there because there are 10 million open jobs right now. What is the disconnect? Is it a skill situation or is it a situation where you have so much money because we printed so much and gave so much away? There's no urgency to get out there. I mean, we all grew up in an environment where if you didn't work, you don't have any money. That's what we need to get back to again. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, heard around the world. Thanks so much for everyone uh, tuning in yesterday, especially because uh, we're having this great discussion with Bill Hemmer about AI, and we have some legitimate questions like all of you have about what it means and why so many smart people are worried about it. Uh, and Kamala Harris, don't worry, is in charge of setting up guardrails for AI, the next generation, because she's done so much so well with what she's been given so far. Uh, so she's going to be in charge. Uh, Gina Romano will be there, too. And a lot of these CEOs and higher-ups and innovators will be together to find out about AI. And what, uh, the thing about waiting about it is... China's not waiting. Russia's not waiting. North Korea's not waiting. Our enemies aren't waiting. So uh, in talking with Bill Hammer, uh, we had our questions. And then Eric, uh, behind the board, had a great idea. Why don't we give that to Chatbot GBT? And Chatbot wrote a poem about Bill Hammer and I's questions. And that made a ton of news. 
Because in Larrick, how long until after you pumped in the question till you got the poem? Oh, seconds. It's quick. Seconds. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing, and it was great. And then you you've got a voice synthesizer. Yeah, there's a bunch of um, text to speech translators online you can look up. So I just plugged it in there and I spat it back out and I played it. And then people just loved it. It was Yahoo picked it up and it was a big story. Uh, joining us now, the real Mark Thiessen. He doesn't need AI to write his column. We hope we don't. Hey, listen, you could have. I mean, where, Mark Thiessen. Where, where's my poem? Right. What did you say? Where's my poem. Where's my poem? I need a poem about me. Well, do you got to do something first? I mean, Hemmer oh. performed for a segment, and then he got a poem in return. You got to you got to so do something. What you could do next time is you could you could you could do a voice clone of Hemmer and interview him about AI without even telling him. That would be that would be and then nuts. Do the interview and then see if your listeners could tell the difference between the Eric. From what you interview. can tell, can I talk? Can I talk in real time to this chatbot GBT or Bard or whatever the other one is? You mean speech? Yeah, it can't. It can't impersonate not, a person. Not can that it? I. No, that yeah, one cannot. ChatGPT is only a text generator. It's a language learning machine. But there are there are AI now where you can do you can have, you can even have video of it. You can have a you can have an avatar of a person, um, and the only thing that gives it away that it's not that they're not the real person is they don't they don't have facial expressions really. Oh. They don't blink. They don't. They don't like scruffer or their brow or something like that. But you could you could create an avatar of Hemmer and have him talk and sit in his voice and answer questions for you. That would be doable. easier on the staff because they don't like yeah. booking him because he's got a huge. And and, and and if we if you could do that for me, then I don't have to call in once a week. Right, and this is so problematic <laughs> for you. This makes your career. Uh, so, Mark, let, let's get to it. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about this this revelation as we know it. And I do want to talk about your column, too, obviously. Yeah. Uh, it's on Ron DeSantis and, and going for the GOP yep. vote. But yep. the House of subpoena and FBI file on President Biden's possible role in a criminal scheme having policy uh, revolve around his business dealings. Now, we have to ask the FBI to give us this with this whistleblower claims is the smoking gun. And I'm, I'm reading that they don't believe the FBI is going to give up this paper. I, I don't know how the FBI can deny this. The uh, the the rumor is what they're going to do is they'll, they'll, they can classify it is what is what Grassley says. That's the only way they can avoid it. But why would um, they? Why would they? Why do would that? they? No, it's exactly right. I, I mean, it, what what's amazing to me is that so this is supposedly happened when Joe Biden, Joe Biden was vice president, right? Yeah. And and let's and let's let's state for the uh, for for the record, we don't know if it's true. We don't know if the allegation is is real, serious. We don't you know we we don't know a lot about it, but. This supposedly happened when Joe Biden was vice president. How are we? You know, that was almost a decade ago. How are how are we, how are we just learning about this right now? How has this not come out? You know, I mean, if there was if there was something like this about Trump, you don't think that this would have been all over the news? This would have been leaked like ages ago. And what it what it, the other thing is, this is a a um, a, a whistleblower coming to Grassley. So Grassley is famous for his support. First of all, the reason to take it seriously is because Grassley is taking it seriously because he is he is not partisan. He is not, you know, he, he is just a he is a well-known champion of whistleblowers. And people tend to come to Chuck Grassley when they've tried internally to do the right thing and can't get the organization to move. And they've got no choice but to go to Congress, and then they go to Congress, and they go to the one guy who protects whistleblowers, which is Chuck Grassley. So the fact that it's coming from Grassley, one, is makes it credible. Two, makes it, it shows how serious it is. And three, shows that there's, in, there's people within the, within the institution who are frustrated 
by 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 how it's being covered up and by how it's being uh, suppressed and are now felt that they had no choice but to go to the co-equal branch of Congress and to the one guy who who protects and champions whistleblowers. Right. I, I want you to hear what uh, Brett Tolman said, uh, what this could be. As you know, he's a U.S. attorney. Cut nine. It was. A document like this really comes down to one thing in my mind, and this is probably an FBI 302 investigative report. I say that because the whistleblower, in order to make the connection and to assess that it's credible information like like Senator Grassley has, has assessed, means that they had to have sat down with whoever's providing the information. And you're not going to do that without making sure you get every detail you can from someone. So, well, I mean, if you if you want to see bias right there, if you classify a document rather than make it public, as opposed yeah. to during the Trump years, everybody knows the FBI was leaking, according to a high level yeah. source of the FBI, X, Y and Z, the Russia investigation, the uh, the first impeachment, uh, the January 6th investigation, you know, all that stuff. It was a direct line to the Washington Post and New York Times. Yeah, it's it's it's, you know, the, the FBI's credibility is in tatters. Um, and if you look at the polls, people don't trust the FBI. People believe that there's a lot of politics in their in their investigation. And they've, you know, this administration has got to really, you know, if because this is not, of course, should not be decided in the White House. It should be decided in the Justice Department. The Justice Department has to decide whether are we are we really going to go and try and totally tank the credibility of the FBI. So you know, when Donald Trump goes out and says something like, you know, we need to defund the FBI, to, most people say, good, good lord, that's ridiculous, right? Uh, but more and more stuff like this comes out, and people start taking that not defunding, but they just start you know the, the, the credibility of the organization is, is, is and and you know there, there's more calls for restructuring and all the rest of it. So I, I think they need to be transparent now that this has come out. Um, and if they're not, then people are going to just you know the, the, this the, this whole you know the whole the whole idea that there's a deep state out there that is trying to t- to, to to tank conservatives just gains more and more credibility the more the more they they cover up. So it looks like Ron DeSantis. If you watch some of the Super PAC ads, no doubt about it, he's getting in. Uh, and it looks like he's going to announce an exploratory committee within two weeks, and then he's probably going to get in in June. Will it be too late? I know you're right today that DeSantis, no. what DeSantis has done. You don't you don't worry if you're DeSantis that you're down by about thirty six points on the net last CBS poll. No, because and first of all, he hasn't even declared his candidacy. He hasn't even started campaigning. He's I mean, what what has Ron DeSantis been doing for the last six months primarily? Working. He's been passing like a juggernaut of conservative reform. Let me just give you a list of what Ron DeSantis has done in Florida since he won reelection by twenty points. He he's he's passed the most comprehensive school choice law in the country. He protected the Second Amendment rights of Florida citizens with constitutional carry legislation, signed a law cracking down on trial lawyers, protecting uh, Floridians from from left-wing bail reform. He passed a law reducing the number of jurors needed to impose capital punishment and made child rape eligible for capital punishment. He signed legislation barring ESG investing of state assets, enacted laws to prohibit abortion after the heartbeat is detectable, and also to expand support for parents and parenting, and he's taking on Disney's crony capitalism. I mean, this is this is just in a few months. So while everybody's out there, you know, saying, oh, Ron DeSantis isn't, you know, focused on the presidential campaign. No, what he's doing is he's focused on delivering victory after victory after victory for conservatives on, on fundamental policy issues that we care about. And so we should – he's going to now turn around after this legislative session is done and say, hey, do you want me to do the same thing in Washington? Imagine after if I win in November 2024, by this time in in the in the spring of 2025, 
the list of things that we could have done. And mm-hmm. I'm going to do that for you. And I've proven it because I've done it. Um, so I, I just think that he's, he's, this hasn't even started yet. Um, and, you know, and if he falls, you know, there's, there's a, the, the field is shaping up nicely because some people are deciding, look, I don't see a path to victory. You know, in the olden days, they might've just gotten in anyway and, and, you know, see if they can use it to raise their profile, but they're not. So it's a limited number of candidates. We're going to find what we got. The Republicans who don't want Trump to be the nominee need to look at, we need to settle on one nominee <laughs> to compete with no, no one candidate to compete against him. And they've got about six months to do it. And, mm. uh, and then we'll see well, what happens. Well, you remember, Mark, I don't have to tell you, but our audience might have forgotten that after South Carolina, there was a massive dropout from Mayor yeah. P to uh, Klobuchar to Elizabeth Warren. They basically yeah. said, listen, you can't win. We need you to leave. And they left. Everybody yep. really left after that. Well, because the Democrats play play team sports, and we and Republicans don't. That's the big problem. Um, but and here's the other thing: is that everyone seems to think that Trump is so insurmountable. CBS poll this week came out: twenty four percent of Republicans say they will only consider Trump as the GOP nominee. Forty nine percent say they're considering both Trump and other candidates, and then another twenty seven percent they're they're saying they're not considering Trump at all. What that means is seventy six percent of the GOP electorate is gettable. There, 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 there's, there, there, there's a segment that just more, there's not considering Trump. And then uh, among the people who say they right now who say they support Trump, more than half of those people are soft supporters who could be convinced right. uh, to go uh, to go with somebody else. And, uh, so uh, this, uh, this, this thing is a jump ball. Mark Thiessen with us. Uh, Mark, a couple of things. I'm really impressed with Trump's team. They keep their heads down. They're not looking to do a bunch of surrogate interviews. They're contacting all the states. They're staying in contact. The ads are solid. And the president has been keeping his powder dry. He doesn't he's not doing 100 interviews. He's not counterdicting himself. He is sitting back. He's letting this horrible trial play out, this um, this rape trial. Joe Tacopina mm-hmm. seems like he's doing a terrible job, to be honest. Um, but it's going to come and it's going to go. Oh, he's going to win or he's going to lose. He's not. He's keeping his profile down. They told him not to do truth social. He hasn't. And I think that his team understands that Ron DeSantis is the number one threat and they're attacking. But it's not necessarily coming from him. And if he was able to strike, get a fair deal on these other town halls, those are the types of things you do if you want to change the outcome of your last election. Yeah, I mean, well, look. We, we, we've been waiting for, you know, six years for Trump to show he can be disciplined. <laughs> so maybe he maybe he, he is finally. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical. He hasn't been he hasn't been very disciplined. Uh, I know. For, but and for, the thing is about you, know, you, he really respects you and he'll reach I out to you. I respect him. But here's the thing. I, I, I am not in I'm not a never Trumper. I've never, never been will. a never Trumper. I, I, I my problem is with Donald Trump is I don't think he can win. And I think that's the argument that that could cost him the nomination. It's it, it's not going after him like Chris Christie is saying. Oh, he didn't deliver on school choice, and he didn't deliver. You know, he he didn't build the border wall. Everybody looks. Of course, the Democrats stopped the border wall. He didn't repeal Obamacare. Well, yeah, John McCain. I mean, you know, no no one's going to buy that. He was a great president. The problem is with Trump is that he com- and what we saw in the 2020 election and the 2022 midterms is he's com- irreparably alienated swing voters, and Republican primary voters are not going to decide the next election. Right. Their support is important, but you have to be able to win over swing voters. And what what DeSantis did in Florida that Trump didn't do in the White House is he won over people who didn't support him the first time. He made their lives better. And then he asked for their vote. And Donald Trump made people's lives better 
But instead of winning over their votes, he drove them away to the point that people who said they thought he had made they were better off now than they were four years ago, right before the 2020 election, still didn't vote for Trump. And And, everything you said is correct, Mark. And everything after the election has solidified that decision. And so I don't know that that's fixable at this point. But do you know everything? But do you know everything you said is correct? But the only thing that I would say is that there was no pandemic that once in a three generation pandemic, as the last one was nice, he wins. He wins four more years. And, and despite and all the media being all against, if he had won the election, then there would have been no January sixth. Exactly. So, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of what ifs. You know, but but you're 100 percent right. He was he was he was cruising to re-election, especially after that first impeachment, which was such a debacle. You know, at that the, people thought that that was political. They were the behind report. him. He was making. You know, the Mueller report was a disgrace. So you know, I it, I I have no hostility towards Donald Trump. I think he was one of the greatest conservative presidents of my lifetime. But he is he can't win. And I and so the question becomes, do you care more about avenging Trump or do you care more about defeating Biden? And and if you and if Biden wins, the the risks are so high, because if Biden wins another term, look, he's going to he's going to be 86 by the time he leaves. If you just look at the actuarial tables, you know, the 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 odds are of survive for an American of surviving to 85, 46 percent. So, so you, that means we got about a sixty percent chance that Kamala Harris becomes the president of the United States. Are you willing to risk that? <laughs> are you willing are all, to risk? These are these are very good ads. I mean, these are that's a very good point. That's and I will say this: this is to the Trump people. When you attack Kaylee McEnany as oh, anti-Trump, when you start vilifying her because you used to work with him and saying things, you have really lost your way, and you're being absolutely a knucklehead. And when I see all these people going after other people uh, who are, I guess, MAGA uh, supporters because they might say, you know, that that, uh, Nikki Haley made a lot of sense in that speech. Or the Disney, uh, I like what DeSantis did on Disney. I think Trump's wrong on that. Next thing you know, it is total chaos. And Kaylee McEnany, when you make Kaylee McEnany the enemy and you're a Trump supporter— you really have to get an adjustment and go see, see a therapist. Oh, yeah. It's out there. And it's, it's, ama- oh it's amazing to me. How, so, even again, Joe Rogan pointed out she was the best press secretary he's ever seen. Yeah, since, since Dana Perino. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a totally different time. I'm so glad uh, Dana's not listening to the radio now. She's on television. <laughs> I'm going to deny I said that. Uh, and if you see Ari Fleischer, you, don't, you never did my show. You don't even know I'm on the air. Uh, there you go. Mark, thanks so much. Great column. He's wrote a column today. DeSantis made himself a conservative juggernaut. What has Trump done? Uh, a lot of great facts in that. Mark, thank you. Thank you, Brian. All right, we're going to take a short time out. Come back. And then Richard Drivers will be in at the bottom of the hour. We'll have a whole half hour. His message is one you got to hear and I think you agree with. His book is now out. Uh, one Thought Scares Me. We teach our children what we wish them to know. We don't teach our children what we don't wish them to know. Uh, the Academy Award winning actor is coming your way. Uh, don't move. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Information you want, truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. His book is called One Thought Scares Me. He's one of the most famous actors of our generation. And I include myself in that. Richard Dreyfus is here. Richard, this will be a short saying. We've got a whole half hour. Then we're going to talk on TV. But thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. 
Thank you. Your mission right now for our audience is going to be what? What do you want to get across to them? Well, uh, on a personal level, I would say everyone who thinks that I'm a liberal should hear that I am not a liberal. I am a libo, conservo, rado, middle of the rodo, just like most of you. You just haven't given it any thought lately. And guess what? You're very pro-American. I you know am. we're not perfect, but you you love the country you're in, and you're like me, concerned that a lot of people here don't appreciate it. Right, right. Of both sides, there is not one villain. There's a mindset that creates villainy. And people should understand this. You answer this question, which you put out there: What happens to the world if there's no America? Right. Uh, there what, is no substitute. What what when when America fails, and it will fail. What then? Right. We got to make sure it doesn't. All right. right. So listen, so Richard, we brought him in early just to say hello. And this way, when we come back, we have the whole half hour to talk about uh, your illustrious career, your new book and your mission. It's the same mission of our audience. I'll let people know how special it is to be here. You hit lotto when you got here, but you have to show your appreciation and work to keep it here. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Who is Joe Biden's vice president? I have honestly no idea. Ooh, great question. No idea. Tamara. I mean, what is it? Kamala Harris. Go stay here. Can you name the three branches of government? The... Oh. Um. Republican, Uh. Democrat, and then I think moderate. (laughs) Legislative, judicial, and consecutive. So that is an example. We went to, uh, we brought the microphones out and we asked people some basic things. You see it on uh, some of the late night shows too. Uh, that was for Jesse Waters' show, just about what how little people know about what's going on in the news today and certainly about history. Uh, Richard Drivis with us now, Academy Award winning actor and author of One Score, One Thought Scares Me. We teach our children what we wish them to know. We don't teach our children what we don't wish them to know. And, Richard, great to see you in studio. Thank and if you. you're watching Fox Nation, you recognize him from every film that was any good. Um, <laughs> so, so, Richard, you were listening to that. And what did you just tell me? While, while you they were going to blame the kids and not really aim correctly because it's what they're taught and what they're not taught. And teachers are not the guilty party but it's the policymakers who say, don't teach that. And uh, school boards, and you cannot uh, blame teachers and, and then, of course, pay them like kitchen help. Um, you have to really commit to an honest history. And when you do that, you have to live up to it. And that means every sin we've ever committed, and we have committed sins. Every sin we've committed, every grand gesture we've committed, we have to be, we have to have the the same bragging rights for those as we have for telling the truth about our past. So um, if you just move a little closer to the microphone, that would make Eric happy. Uh, So, Richard, I'm reading your book, and you talk about. Uh, you're concerned people don't understand how great this country is. We right. never said you're perfect. 
But you talk, you grew up, you always loved, you personally love reading history, yeah. love reading about our past. It's fascinating. There's no history quite like it. Right. It doesn't mean we walk on water and that Jefferson was perfect and that Washington never made a mistake. But the world is a better place because America exists. Yes. And you're concerned like I am that people might not realize that they'll live here. Well, you had uh, – one day I was watching Denise D'Souza on, uh, on Mike Huckabee and he was saying that he had written a book called America, What the World Would Be Like Without Us. And I got up, went to the bookstore, bought the book. Came back home, read the book, and then went grumpy because in his book he didn't answer his title. He had named it, but he didn't get anywhere near answering it. So they called me that day, Mike, and said, you want to come down and be on the show? And I said, yes. And I walked in. And there was a D'Souza, and I he said, what did you think? And I said, uh, I'm very confused and frustrated because you had an incredibly provocative title, and I want to see that world because I think that would be an incredible history class. What would the world be like without us? Wow. But you didn't. All you did was say how great we were. You didn't compare it. But, yeah, I think if Dinesh D'Souza, I think in a way he's saying, look at how we changed the world by our existence, how many democracies had come from there, giving people a say in their government. But, you see, they don't know that there was a change. So that wasn't the um, thoughtful uh, conclusion of their thinking. They didn't – he didn't compare it to anything. He just described how great we were. And and if he had compared it – to any country, whether it was England or Russia or China or whoever, that would have been of some value. Gotcha. So, so what do you what do you want to get across to our listeners right now? Well, a lot of things, but there was a revolution, and there's a revolution only when you turn the values of the entire world on their head, and that's what we did. We turned the power of the sovereign kicked the sovereign out and handed that power to all of the people. And that was not only not done, that was as revolutionary a move as you can possibly create. And we risked the nation on that idea that we could confidently educate our poorest and educate our most enslaved, and they would be smart enough to run the country or to create art or to create this or that. And they were out to create intellectual resource pools and know and know that the people swimming around in those pools were all going to be smart enough to be president or senator yep. or something, and they weren't ever educated that well. And I would say they tried to and gave it a good shot for a long time. And then after World War II, they said, I don't think it's good to risk our children on this anymore. And they 
threw it away. Who's they? Uh, educators. Educators and politicians. And you write in your book that after World War II, it's our zenith. You know, we freed the world, we beat the bad guys, we led right. the world, and we rebuilt the places that we blew up. Uh, That's right. With the Marshall Plan. And, and, we, and we didn't um, brag about it. We did it. We did good things, not talked about them. And all over the world, people admired us for all the right reasons. And before you could blink, they had removed civics, the study of the Constitution, the study of the Bill of Rights, the birth tale of America. These things had always been taught. And now they were not... uh, They didn't disappear. They were turned over to social studies, which is one floor up and in the back of the building. And they were turned from actual events in our history to a gentle panorama as a description of our way of life. And, And I remember one politician came out recently and said, you know, America was never that great. You know, and maybe contrast to a president that said America, make America great again. But what I always think is people think when you say a country is great, it's perfect. And you make clear in your first words in your book, you never said that. But I think what makes us great, these are my words, is that we try to be, that we try to make it better. We uh, identify it. One party identifies, another party identifies, and we try to make it better. Was right. slavery right? Absolutely not. Did we, did we fight a war to fix it? Yes. Is Jim Crow terrible? Absolutely. Did we? Is there black and white water fountains now in the South? Are people telling go to the back of the buses? No. We we owned up to it. Riots in the streets. It wasn't pleasant. It wasn't pretty. But we fixed it. And we, again, are still this country that wants to be better and better. And you're concerned that we don't understand that. We don't want the same things we used to want. And I hope to God we relearn that ambition and relearn that um, goal because I have seen audiences acquire outrage on their faces when you describe what's happened, and they're outraged that their children are not getting what they should. Well, they come and back I have, with negative things about us. And I have seen those same parents have outrage disappear from their faces before they get to their car. And the commitment of making it work disappears. And what is that commitment? It's the commitment to the idea that Jefferson wrote that said that these people, we are the sovereign power in this country. We have the same power in collective as the monarch and the sovereign. Now, do we know that? Do we act on that? Or some in alch- in some sick alchemic way when we vote and we're voting some guy in he thinks he's been made our boss and he's not only not our boss but somehow we've got to get across to him mm-hmm. if you don't listen to your constituency if you don't listen to us who put you there we will rip you out of that office so fast you would not blink. Right. And they are absolutely impervious to that because they know that we don't have the guts or the knowledge to do it. 
So also, Richard Dreyfuss, our guest, you recognize the voice, of course. If you're not watching Fox Nation, you're not seeing them. We're privileged to have him here. He's also got the Dreyfus Civics Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, launched in 08. It aims to revive the teaching of civics in American public ed- education to empower future generations with the critical thinking skills they need to fulfill the vast potential of American citizenship. It's up to all our responsibilities to do it. Now, amongst us, uh, Richard, there's been some great presidents along the way that we didn't know were great at the time. Like, look at Harry Truman. Name me a top five category when they rank presidents. He's not great or near great along the way. Right. He can't, the guy's a farmer. You know, right. uh, with everything of Andrew Jackson, the big pluses, this guy is a self-made success story. He was basically an orphan by 13. No other country does that happen. It wasn't the ruling class of Jefferson, Monroe, and Washington, and uh, and Madison. Then all of a sudden you get an outsider who's president because he campaigned and he went to the people. Well, there's and, a whole – you can create a list. Starts with Thomas Jefferson – and it ends somewhere in the 20th century. And it's the list of those presidents who happened to be in office when there was a crisis and every other branch of government was closed for the summer or closed, we've gone fishing. So that Thomas Jefferson had to create a navy to answer the Tripoli pirates and Jeff and Lincoln had to do what he did in order to respond to the Southern secession. So, and I think it's so important too. Nobody would have predicted that Lincoln was going to amount to be this great leader. Right. Only in this country does it happen. And when you talk about Thomas Jefferson, this guy didn't want to get a he didn't want to get a platoon together to help fight the war, a militia together to help fight the war. But yeah. he ends up one saying, telling uh, Adams, "I need this navy, and we're going to have to tell the whole world we're willing to fight for our freedom." And had to send a message. Yep. An unlikely person, a great intellect. A guy who would have voted against that Navy in a second. And yet, because he was president, he knew what he had to do. Right. Uh, and I'll bring you to another one that I think you could appreciate and you brought up before the show, Sam Houston. Sam Houston is a guy that was not achieving much as a kid. His brothers were much more enterprising, joins the military, finds a mentor in Jackson, has some problems. He drank too much for a while, had a problem with his marriage. Governor would just leave and with the American Indians. But then at the right person at the right time, when the war's about to start in the South, he's like, I, we're not going to do well. We should not get into this war. And they said, hey, if you don't vote for this war uh, as governor, you're out. He's like, I quit. So he left rather than fight for the South in the breakup of a country. That's character. Yes, that's character. And we don't even think to include that in our little list of checks and boxes. And and what do we care about? If we cared about character, we would not have had the last number of presidents. And I actually uh, called Larry King one day. And I normally don't do this, but I called Larry and I said, I want to be on your show now. And he said, okay. And I went down there and I said, uh, I'm not a partisan. And you know hey, that. Hey, Rich, why don't you hold that story? We're going to take a short time out okay. and come back. We have a few minutes on the other side. Richard Drivers is here. His book is now out. You got to pick it up, especially if you're a parent. Uh, and it is One Thought Scares Me. We'll talk more about it when we return. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. On 
a talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. So when we left, Richard Dreyfuss, uh, the Academy Award-winning actor who has a passion for this country, whose book is now out called One Thought Scares Me, was about to say why he called up Larry King and said, oh, yeah. I'm coming down. Now, by the way, it's good to be Richard Dreyfuss. Somebody people can call the number yeah. one talk show at the time and well, say, put me on. I had a separate reputation because I was a, a new celebrity and I loved to talk politics. And I wasn't afraid of talking politics. And so I was always being asked to do that. And there's a story about me and Dick and and, uh, and Rumsfeld that will curl your hair. Okay. Uh, but this one was that I called Larry and I said, I want to appear on your show now. And he said, okay. And I came down there and I said, I want you to understand, important, that this is not a political statement, that this is not about politics or political principle. This is about the man, Trump, who I am opposed to because he has no simple common decency. And what year is this? 2016, 2016. And I said, you have to ask yourself a question if you're impressed by Donald Trump. Imagine him calling you and saying that he's in love with your daughter and he wants to marry her. Right. Would you be willing to say yes to Donald Trump being your son-in-law? Not your president, your son-in-law. And I must say, I think America has, has more than enough morality in its back story to be able to stand up and say, never. Right. So you did not vote for Trump. That's pretty obvious. Yeah. 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 Did, did you, have you voted for a Republican? I have. Yeah. I have. And I would. I got no problem with that. You just, I, you just I, as a matter of fact, I would say that had he not taken it, I would have called myself a compassionate conservative. And I come from the left. And that's pretty much what George W. Bush ran on. Yeah, and I and I would have used that phrase, but he had used it first, and so right. I could not do that. But I'm I'm against all of those phrases, all of those descriptions. I'm against them all. They mislead, they misunderstand, they make things simple when they're not. Right. They create an impression of simplicity and understandability when it's incomprehensibly complex. So one thing I get from you, you're a patriot. You feel fortunate to be born here, and you're concerned that people don't appreciate it, and you're taking action. Well, without America, yikes. I mean, uh, just imagine 1945 without the United States of America. And, or 2023. And I still wow. think, yeah. Well, we, need, we, we, we need at least a dry cleaning we need a we need some humility. We got it. Uh, listen, we'll talk more about this on One Nation over the weekend. Richard, thanks so much for your time. Go out and pick up his book. One thought scares me. Richard Dreyfus, thank you. It, the th- the thought from the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade.
Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. one 408 7669 Bob and the we're going to talk about this Ukraine war. Uh, the, the latest column with Eli and Lake, Russia playing the victim on the Kremlin drone attack. Eli also is going to be helping us out with a Memorial Day special as we look back at the Iraq war, what would happen if we didn't go in. And he was there every step of the way, so he would know. And I think it's good for us to recalibrate where we were at as a country back then. And with me in studio is David Avella, a GOPAC chairperson. Usually you're here, um, chairman, I should say. Uh, David, you're usually here when you do an outnumber. Do you do an outnumber today? I am. Are you? Okay, he's all ready to go. So um, great to see you. Great to see you. Thank you. Republicans are very uh, feel pretty good about Jim Justice getting in in West Virginia. And Ben Cardin retiring, I thought would be a natural Larry Hogan going over there. So far, he doesn't want to do it, but he is so popular in Maryland that that could be a Republican seat if he got in. Absolutely, it could be. Uh, But back to your justice, I mean, there'll be a competitive primary there and Governor Justice and then Congressman Alex Mooney, who uh, Club for Growth has pledged $10 million to help – Help get him the nomination. Not Jim Justice? Not Jim Justice. That, that's but, interesting. But Jim Justice is not going to lack for resources either, being he's West Virginia's only billionaire. So it will be a well-funded on both sides. And whoever comes out of it uh, has a really strong chance of beating Joe Manchin and getting us a seat to put us towards majority. Many people think that Manchin's not going to run. Brian, as you and I have discussed, I have followed Joe Manchin my entire career. I actually started working in the West Virginia State Legislature, and it was my off. Our, the senator I worked for shared a area with Joe Manchin's office, so I have watched him his entire career. And to think we know what he's going to decide, uh, I think the best thing is to follow his what he said, which is he's going to make a December m- decision in December. The Inflation Reduction Act is the biggest mystery ever to me because he because it was so obvious. The stuff that he wanted can't be in that act anyway because it was because it was done on reconciliation. So he had to go on their word that they were going to honor what they promised him, and they didn't honor it. And he didn't have Republican votes because he was so angry about the about drilling and permitting and things like that nature. So he feels like he's been totally let down. It was supposed to be three hundred eighty billion dollars. It's around a trillion dollars. How you have an act that's triple what you said it was, and it's, have it be constitutional is astounding. But besides that, he stopped us from adding two states. He stopped the end of the filibuster. You uh, you bring up uh, the great uh, Joe Manchin in that he worked. He was the key vote that got that bill passed. And now it's an election year. He sees it's a bad bill. So now he's going to work to undo it. As much as Joe, Biden, Joe Manchin can be a good vote from time to time, he is ultimately a reliable vote for Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden. And you think about major pieces of legislation, whether it was tax bills, whether it's health care bills, whether it was uh, infrastructure bills. Joe Manchin has been there to support the Biden administration lock, stop and lock, stock and barrel. But he has stopped some other crazy things of uh, uh, packing the court. He says it's a non-starter. You know how we stopped the Bi- Biden agenda even more? Put a Republican in the U.S. Senate True. from West Virginia. But I'm just saying during that time, there's always been plenty of Republicans who went against Trump. Sure. But there's not been many Democrats to go against the Democratic president. Uh, let's have a reliable vote who will stop this Biden craziness. Well, I'm biased. I think Jim Justice is one of the greatest guys I've met. I just think <laughs> he's, he's a lot of fun, <laughs> self-made success story, so bold, and uh, and I think just personable. I was also, I hear he's a great basketball coach. Yes. High school basketball yeah, coach. Uh, women's basketball coach. Yeah, and he tried to get the boys, team. too. Yeah. So I just love these multitaskers who does what he does. And I understand he's a great golfer in college, captain of the Marshall uh, golf team. But out in the, let's just talk more about the Senate for a second. 
have you have you seen a challenge to Senator Tester? Is there someone out there that you think could beat him because he does have fundamental uh, Montana support? Uh, it's pretty widely known that former co- or current congressman, our nominee last time, Matt Rosendale, is going to give another shot at or certainly thinking about running again. Uh, and then there's one or two others that are thinking about running against Tester. Uh, Tester's no easy out. Uh, as he showed from the last few elections, we've had good nominees against him. He never votes. Uh, he votes with the Democratic line all the time. He, uh, never agreed. stood up to anything. Mansion and Cinema are the ones to stand up and take the bullets, even though he probably wouldn't have voted for it. Uh, but he goes home and plays that I am a conservative fighting against Washington. But he which, does it. Uh, hopefully we can do a better job of exposing that. We're time. on WHIO in, in Ohio. And Sherrod Brown is going to do the best he can to sound like a moderate in Ohio, which is done reliably red. Mm-hmm. Uh, what have you seen about his uh, chances of uh, any Republican chances of unseating him? Well, let, let's keep in mind that for all the talk that Ohio is a swing state, it's not. Uh, and now you're down to really just Sherrod Brown. And whether it be Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who's thinking about running, uh, Matt Dolan, who ran last time, is thinking about running. We will have a strong nominee this time, and we're going to give Sherrod Brown a good run for his money this time. And I think overall the theme will be uh, the big story will be, and it's already been mapped out there, is MAGA conservatives extreme, and they want to make they want to make abortion illegal. Uh, the, the Republicans have had now about a year to try to get that message out. What is the right message on abortion? Uh, the right message on a, every a politician, elected official, has to decide where they are. Uh, ultimately, Supreme Court has said it's going to be determined by the states. Uh, and what you're seeing, Brian, across the country is, is states led by Republicans are putting uh, more pro-life policies in place. And and states led by Democrats are putting more pro-choice uh and if that is your driving issue, um, people tend to line up and, and move to states where they have policies that they like. And that, in some ways, uh, that's what you're seeing happening right now. But in the states that you need uh, and the ones in the midterms, I mean, I, in my humble opinion, Joe Biden's party would have been routed in the midterms if it wasn't for Roe v. Wade being overturned. Joe Biden's party would have been routed had we given – uh, voters an agenda that independents could have said we want that instead of what do you mean and we republicans believe last cycle that if we just told people how bad joe biden was that would be enough and we weren't strong enough until the very end luckily when speaker mccarthy came out with his commitment to america uh, to talk about what we were for we didn't spend enough time talking about what we would have we'd do differently um, federally uh, you look at what we did, though, at the state level. Brian Kemp took out a big star in Stacey Abrams. We had uh, in every state where we had a Republican, almost every state, we had a Republican majority. We gained uh, seats in the state legislatures because we talked about what we were for. At the federal level, we have to accept that it's more than just talking about how bad Joe Biden is. We have to present an agenda for folks and have them say that's what we want. Um, I want you to hear uh, with Chuck Grassley. This this is pretty big news that came across yesterday. For the longest time, we watched the Biden family business, and obviously President uh, Trump felt as though they were corrupting, got basically got impeached for it, uh, almost fulfilled. And Rudy Giuliani uh, was out there going to to investigate. But now you have the cover of the New York Post today. Talk about a whistleblower that's come forward. Uh, they call it a stunning development, but the House Oversight Committee issued a subpoena Wednesday for an FBI file that a whistleblower said links President Biden himself as vice president 
to a criminal scheme involving money for policy decisions. Absolutely third rail for any party in any American. Can you imagine if people thought that you were sacrificing America's interests so you could make a little bit of money? What can you tell us about that? It is important that uh, the FBI and prosecutors treat this whistleblower as credible as they treat whistleblowers when it comes against Republicans. And that partisan investigations from the left are no better than partisan investigations from the right. And if we have evidence, it needs to be presented. It needs to be taken seriously. It needs to be looked at. And if crimes were committed, people need to be prosecuted. Here's Chuck Grassley. Cut one. We have credible information that this uh, possible uh, criminal activity took place. uh, And I can't verify whether or not it's really a criminal activity, but I do have a faith in the whistleblowers that bring it to me that this document exists. We have a rough idea of what's in the document, and uh, I just want to do what congressional oversight uh, responsibilities I have to see what the FBI's and the DOJ's done to follow up on it. So we know that Hunter Biden's had dealings with this Russian mayor and the family. The, they've David Devin Archer, the partner of Hunter Biden. Uh, we know that Jeff Cooper had lunch. Uh, Jeff Cooper was the partner of Hunter Biden, and they had lunch with the vice president at the time, Carlos Slim, one of the richest people in the world. The president visited Mexico. They wonder if it was Romania. Uh, Breakfast with Dad was on the schedule. A Romanian businessman Gabriel Papavaciu uh, in early 2015. They want to help him. Hunter Biden was his lawyer. Go figure to help him challenge a corruption conviction. Then next thing you know, November 15th of next year, they're having breakfast with the vice president, China and CEFC. We have looked at the five public deals that he's had that has many people raising their eyebrows. This could be the answer there. It it could. The key word of of Chuck Grassley's answer is we need to verify. And if we verify, Americans are going to say, look, we, we need to prosecute accordingly. That's what they want. They want justice uh, based off facts. But look at the bigger picture here for this, this White House, that now they have to deal with an increasingly uh, uh, obvious investigation that must occur into this. At the same time, when they're trying to deal with the debt Limit. They're trying to deal with uh, the border issue and that as this continues to mount and more things come on this White House's plate, this becomes a big distraction for them. When you look at 2024 and you see how Glenn Youngkin says, I'm not running, and Mike Pompeo says, I won't be in, it doesn't look like Christy Noem. A year ago, we were speculating yeah. that all these guys are getting yeah. in. It looks like Pence in inevitability, DeSantis in inevitability, and Tim Scott's a week away. How is this shaping up in your mind? Well, let's keep in mind, Youngkin said he's not running now. He's not running this year. He hasn't ruled out uh, that should, you know, next year he could change his mind in subsequent comments that he has made. Uh, he's not running right now. Uh, so could he get in if he sees that the field— oh, I didn't know there was a clarification. Did he go out of his way to clarify? Because uh, In a day or so later, there was some comments that he said he's not running now. That doesn't mean he's not going to run down the road. Along those lines were, was his comment. Um, right now we have a, a, a field that is President Trump is the clear front runner, and then many candidates will get their opportunity to show that they should be the nominee and not President Trump. Uh, right now DeSantis is the one that everybody has a focus on, and he'll either emerge or he won't. And if he doesn't, then it gives someone else a chance, just as we saw in 2016 when as President uh, then-candidate Trump uh, 
got himself into front-runner status. Remember, he wasn't the front-runner in the very beginning, and he worked his way to become that. And then we went through a series of folks. If you didn't want Trump, did you want Cruz or did you want Walker or did you want Bush? And that'll happen again this cycle. When you look at people who come out and say, yeah, Trump can win the nomination, but he can't win the general because moderates uh, won't listen and uh, suburban women have checked out. It's uh, it's laughable to say we'll know the political environment next November. And we don't know what's going to happen between now and We know and a recession could be looming. We know the Title 42 is about to evaporate. We know a debt ceiling is going to be hit in a month. We know that he's got 34% approval rating on his economy, which he's been bragging about. That Those are facts. You know, the I, I always remind Republicans that you know, ultimately President Trump got the nomination and then went on and won the nomination because he talked about how he was a businessman who knew how to create jobs, that he wanted to secure the border, and that he was going to stand up to Washington. And that got him not only through the primary but ultimately led to his election. And I say all that to say this. What the president did in 2016 was present an agenda of what he would do in office more than just he was against Hillary Clinton. Whoever our nominee is in 2024 has to think optimistically, has to think optimistically about what the future is going to hold and how they're going to get us there. It's more than just talking about how bad Biden is. Look, 80 percent of Americans don't want Biden to run again. The reality is we only get to pick from the people actually on the ballot. Fifty four percent of Democrats don't want him to. That's right. And so we're in a position to be able to win in 24. We just have to give voters a reason to vote for us. Right. David Avell is here, GOPAC chairman and GOP strategist, obviously. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about what that vision looks like. And then Eli Lake at the bottom of the hour. Uh, there are some developments in the Russian war. And there's a lot of optimism for Ukrainians, pro-Ukrainians, that they're going to make big progress this spring. Dare I say, they have to. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, David Avell is here. He's going to be on. He's going to be the man in the middle. on outnumbered shortly, uh, and uh, he's the GOPAC chairperson, GOP strategist, chairman, uh, GOP strategist. Uh, David, oh, you did mention something to you in the break that I found interesting. You believe almost all stats reveal that we're becoming more and more divided. That more and more people say, uh, "No gas ovens in New York. I'm going to Florida. Uh, tax is going to continue to go up." I'm going to uh, where the problem I'm going to go to Texas Mm -hmm. and more and more people in California are actually going to other places. But for the most part, do you can are you concerned that we're dividing among the states that we agree with? Isn't that the way we've always been? That that is a, a growing trend that ultimately Americans are moving to get to policies that they're in favor of. That's why you see states like New York and California and and Illinois losing population. If you looked at some of the tax data that came out last week and the the billions that New York is losing to Florida and Texas and Tennessee. So they raise taxes more uh, in in those states and made people want to leave. Oh, made made them want to leave here. That's right. But like so when they leave, the revenue goes down. So they're going to raise taxes again. uh, At some point, it comes all crashing down. Right. But that's why you see the growth states being those led by Republicans that are seeing. uh, And ultimately, what does that mean long-term politically? Well, it means states like Florida and Texas and Tennessee and North Carolina are going to get more seats, and they're electing Republicans. So you're going to see in these 
growing trend that Congress becomes more Republican, arguably, at least in the House. But what you what you will have, too, is these urban environments are falling apart. So to me, it's not, well, if you have a Republican running Chicago, it's different. If you have a Republican running um, of New York, it's different. There's no city, it seems, where there's a Republican mayor. So do when you guys sit around and you strategize, do you think about how what is our urban strategy? Or do you just give up on the urban strategy? Well, we do have to give a shout out to the Republican mayor of Jacksonville in Oklahoma City. Or we do have two Republican mayors. No, you can't give up on the big cities. Absolutely not. They they are as much a part of America as as uh, as the rural areas. But it is why you're seeing increasing number in Republican states, state legislatures stepping in and saying to prosecutors in the big cities, you actually have to enforce the law. Uh, it's why you see down in Florida, you, the governor DeSantis getting more active that if if prosecutors aren't going to enforce the law they're going to step in right uh, but but it's and it's in addition to the elected officials you also also have to look at some of the coalitions within the democratic party think about this brian we were talking about it in colorado the the teachers union just passed a resolution to say capitalism is an exploitation of children and of schools did not know that it I mean, is it's it's um we we wonder about uh, why s- schools, we see that now 13% of kids can't talk about U.S. history. We see math scores are down, si- science scores are down, spelling's down. Well, when our focus isn't on the key um, reading, writing, and arithmetic, uh, that's why we get where we are. I just hope, though, a lot of times things have to change when they get really bad. And okay. my hope is that Republicans get a strategy in there just to make it, to say this is my vision of your city, rather than just saying we can't win there. So why compete there? Uh, so, David, good luck on Outnumber. Thank you. Hope we have a good group. Hopefully I'll be as smart as you. Well, I, you know what? That's a goal, but I can't guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> the more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Well, Ukraine does have drones that can fly this far. They have fired drones. Uh, Ukraine is about 460 miles from Moscow. That is Kiev. So it would be maybe a 400-mile flight. It would be difficult. It's possible this could have been staged by Ukrainian operatives close to to Moscow. Mm -hmm. But, look, the blowback, if this failed, would have been severe. And and I think the Ukrainian government is much more careful to do something so reckless and clumsy. I really don't think they did it. And they're denying they did it. And they're talking about that's Fred Flights. Uh, He has a uh, he was former assistant national security advisor to John Bolton, and he's been in with a few administrations, doesn't think there's really much of a chance that a drone from Ukraine was there to kill Vladimir Putin. Why would they do that? Eli Lake, contributing editor of Commentary Magazine, columnist for the New York Sun, host of Reeducation Podcast, uh, weighs in. Eli, do you believe that the Ukrainians are taking a shot at Putin? No, I do not. Um, I think that if you look at the video, the drones themselves do not look like military-grade drones that could have traveled the distance from Ukrainian territory. And the, there have been a number of reports in Moscow and the kind of suburban areas of Moscow of drones just sort of in the sky and often falling out of the sky. I think um, this was either a group of kind of kids 
Um, because there, this was, by the way, the idea that this was an assassination attempt is ludicrous. The uh, drones were too uh, small to carry any kind of significant payload in that regard. And uh, the Ukrainians know, like everybody else, that Vladimir Putin actually rarely spends any time in the Kremlin. So I think what we're seeing here is a kind of scramble from the Russian side to um, come up with either a pretext for their next kind of round of attacks in Ukraine um, or just sort of a, a message in some ways to their own population to justify a war that they are clearly losing. So they, do you think they're fearing the surge that's coming their direction? Well, the counteroffensive, the Ukrainian, I mean, it, right now, you know, the Russians have a fairly advantageous position in the sense that the Ukrainians rarely have at least open, have, there have been no open attacks by Ukraine inside of Russia. There may have been a Ukrainian hand in the attack that killed the daughter of one of the chief Russian propagandists, Alexander Dugin. There may have been um, a Ukrainian role in the um, sabotage of the pipeline uh, Nord Stream 2. All of that's possible, but um, it's also possible there are other people who have you know motivations. You could see that being the Russians as well. I'm not yet convinced by Cy Hirsch's reporting on the pipeline, but I'm not ruling it out. But I don't think you know there's any evidence at this point that um, the Russians have anything to fear in terms of in their own territory a serious Ukrainian reprisal. It's the counteroffensive in Ukraine is going to be against the Russian military positions that are have invaded their country. And there's a huge difference there. So the surge, they have about 18 percent of the country right now. The surge to get their country back is poised to go now that the spring's here. Most of the tanks, I think, that are going to arrive have arrived. Uh, the strategy is probably in place. So do you think the Russians fear what the Ukrainians are about to do? I think they do fear. I think the military certainly fears. But the military has been bested, and now we're dealing with third-tier Russian conscripts a lot of the times who are on these front lines. It's really a cannon fodder kind of operation. The main damage that the Russians are doing in Ukraine are the indiscriminate firing of missiles and 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 other and and lethal drones. You know, what everything we, we we've all seen the footage: apartment buildings, schools, hospitals, etc. So I think that the I think the Russians are, are are concerned. Remember, here's something else to kind of keep in mind. There was a huge rush of stories about two months ago, if you remember, about China possibly stepping up its support yes. for Russia and providing arms. We haven't seen that yet. That's interesting, and that I'm not saying that's because of brilliant, you know, Biden administration diplomacy. I don't think that's necessarily it. I think it might be that Xi is looking at this and. Like anyone who's making a kind of, you know, big geostrategic decisions, he sees the Russian military as the kind of hollow Potemkin force that it is. And it's like throwing money, you know, good money after bad in some way. But they like us so distracted. But they like happens. us distracted using our armaments and depleting our resources. They love that. That's true. And there is a concern if you talk to people in the defense industry that we have committed so much to the Ukrainian front that we, we need to have, make sure that we have stocks to deal with our other kind of obligations as well. But I always kind of come back to this point. If the United States um, does not, if, rather I should say, if Ukraine loses and is forced into kind of a humiliating uh, deal with Putin that allows him to consolidate the gains that he's, uh, you know, from his illegal war, that is a kind of perverse incentive for the Chinese as well. What you want to sort of do with the Ukraine theater is to sort of make it a demonstration to the Chinese that if you try to make a move on Taiwan, 
there's a very good chance you will lose and you won't get what you want. And it's not as a simple a calculation as you may have thought. America and uh, its allies are not as weak, are not as um, feckless. I, I know. I just would have loved that. a better message from Macron to say, listen, I'm for you guys. But if you invent Taiwan, if you if you take over Taiwan, Europe is going to be united in alienating you. Instead, he said, I'm not going to get involved. How damaging was well, that? That's that's very that's not great. And I think it's a real problem. On the other hand, if you would have asked the French government before Putin's invasion of Ukraine, will there be a response like we've seen from Europe? I mean, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have, you know, sometimes it takes a terrible thing to happen in order to really see the kind of response. So um, I don't I, I'm I was flabbergasted when I saw those comments from Macron. I thought it was totally unhelpful. And I don't understand what he's thinking. On the other hand, I also think that it's going to be a different matter if if you see an invasion of Taiwan. And it's not just the French. I mean, think about what that's going to mean for the Japanese and other. I mean, China is going to have a serious pushback, at, at you know, not just militarily, but economically. I mean, it's going to be a real problem, I think, for China as well. Right. They think they always think long term. That's my worry. They yeah. think, well, we'll put up with this for 15 years and we don't care about our people anyway. Um, but they're try- they're doing the best they can to try to consolidate the world against us, including that that new uh, trade group they're forming with. Yeah, I'm not expanding. as worried about that, though. That, I think, is just a lot of bluster. There's so much. In- there's, there's not really a great advantage at of aligning economically with the Chinese. Just ask the Vietnamese. We were in a terrible war with them a generation ago, if you remember. And, you know, there were very legitimate grievances that the Vietnam nationalists would have with America. And they have deepened their cooperation with the United States because they know that it is totally a bad deal for they will be supplicants, they will, you know, entirely if they if they try to align with China. I'm just not as worried about that because the experience of other countries that have tried to cozy up to the Chinese has been so bad. And the Chinese are, are so vicious in their kind of what they call debt diplomacy. They're where, mobsters. They're mobsters. Yeah, uh, they they, are, they, yeah. they give you a loan, you can't pay back, them. and then they take what you built. Yeah, ex- that's exactly right. And so I think the message is pretty clear that you get a much better deal with the United States. But the problem is, is that I'm worried that, you know, we've had now successive presidencies, really going back to Obama, where – What's been the message from the American leadership in the world? I mean, you know, we have to kind of stand up for our values and act, you know, with more confidence. Well, that's really why it's so important that Ukraine beats back this Russian illegal war, because I think that that is the kind of thing that can that has the momentum to turn things around in that regard. Eli Lake is with us, contributing editor of Commentary Magazine, columnist for the New York Sun. He's got a podcast um, called the Reeducation Podcast. So, Eli. Let, let's talk about what uh, this new story that now the, our State Department, which I have no faith in, our Secretary of State, I think he's terrible, and Jake Sullivan, awful. Uh, I don't think they really love the country too much personally, and I don't think that's a good starting point. But I will say this. They say they're now warming to the prospect of China playing a role in the peace effort. In what respect? In what peace effort? That they're in the, warming, in to the, the in? In warming to the role of China in the peace effort with Russia and the Ukraine? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope that that's not real. Oh, my God. Well, that's not a great idea. I mean, China is Russia's ally in this regard. Um, and I just, you know, like there needs to be a, you know, victory effort, and then we can talk about the terms of peace. This is the mistake, by the way, of all the modern presidents is that 
idea that everybody has to think of an exit strategy in these conflicts when the exit strategy has to be defeat the invading army. That's the exit strategy. I don't understand. That's very troubling to kind of hear that. But again, I'm looking at the fact that the shoe hasn't dropped yet on the Chinese uh, supplying the Russians in terms of their actual military materiel as opposed to other ways the Chinese are helping Russia. But the way it would turn up on the battlefield, if those leaks are correct and they seem to be correct, is they'll look like civilian arms. They're not going to have the Chinese emblem on them, and they'll just appear. Uh, yeah, but we would have heard because I think the United States has very good intelligence in terms of the Russian supply chain. So we would have known at this point, given that there was obviously a strategic leak before, that the Chinese were considering it. So it strikes me that we probably would have heard at this point, especially after the Discord leak, um, we probably would have known if that if the Chinese had followed through on that. That's so the, my that's my hunch. So uh, one thing that Vladimir Putin, you can honestly say, is a flat out loss is the expansion of NATO happened. He's upset about it. Well, they just added Finland. Now Sweden's being held out by Turkey's vote. Turkey Erdogan is up for an election. He's also having a health scare. Uh, all six parties have combined in Turkey to fight against Erdogan, combine against him. But he is in control of the army. Where's that heading, and why is it important to all my listeners? Well, first of all, it's very important because Turkey, even if it wasn't a member of NATO, is a very important country, and it has been for some time in terms of U.S. strategic interests. It's also important because Erdogan has played both sides of the Russia relationship. I mean, he he has come to blows almost with Russian forces in Syria from a few years back. On the other hand— You know, he's purchased advanced air defense systems from the Russians, and he likes to have the option that he can always sort of say, I've got a foot in this other camp. Now, my view is that that's not tenable if if Turkey wants to remain a NATO ally. And I'm concerned because, you know, since Erdogan's been in power, he's purged the leadership of his own military. So he's got loyalists there at high rank. So if there is this sort of six against one dynamic and he loses in the election, Will he cede power voluntarily? That is a huge question. And what will the military do in that particular situation? If we would have asked that question 10, 15 years ago, I really wouldn't have been worried because the Turkish military was a force for sort of stability in a lot of ways and was not was worried about the further Islamization of the country. Now, I don't think we have that kind of information and we have that kind of assurances from the Turkish military. So I'm concerned on that. Yeah, it's just interesting what's, what's taking place, too. And now you have a situation in, in the Middle East. Please explain to me how it's better off since Trump left. We decided to get oh, back in the, in the Iranian East, deal. Yeah, Middle East. Ex- explain to me. We try to get back in the Iran deal, alienating Saudi Arabia. They started having a relationship now with Iran and with China. And uh, Sudan was part of the Abraham Accords has fallen apart. And now you have a situation where Israel is losing the Democratic Party here. Can you describe the Middle East that we're in now? Well, I, I, I think that there is a I, I think that the Biden administration lost an opportunity. They always gave lip service to the Abraham Accords and they said they would like to expand and follow on that. But they never did the things that were necessary in order to make that happen, which is to sort of keep a very tough line on Iran. It's amazing to me. We have now seen about six months of a significant uprising in Iran. You've seen President Biden and other officials kind of saying the right words in terms of American solidarity with that uprising in Iran. And yet they still will not give up this idea that they can eventually negotiate a deal with the people who they're uprising against, this regime that oppresses the Iranian people. So that's point number one. Point number two is 
it's one thing to say, you know, we'd like, you know, for Saudi Arabia to sort of stay in our orbit. But if you don't provide correct, proper leadership in the region diplomatically, then you're going to see absolutely other countries hedge their bets, which is what the Saudis just did. And we're seeing it now with Bashar al-Assad, the butcher of Syria. And lots of Arab countries are now going forward with normalizing relations with Assad. Um, you know, even and, and the United States really is doing nothing about that. So it's I would say, yes, the situation in the Middle East is worse since Biden came into office. There's a lot of people in the State Department not doing their job. Uh, they got to be fanned out and try to battle back everywhere using diplomacy, a trade, uh, American ingenuity as uh, as what they could bring to the table. But it doesn't seem like we have our hand anywhere effectively, especially in our own hemisphere. Eli Lake, well, you know, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, oh, go well, ahead. Final say, you make a very good point really quickly, and that is on the basic pr- first principle point that the United States needs to sort of say we're not interested in deals with decrepit dictatorships like Iran. And once you sort of put that off and like Trump did and you say we're, we're out of the deal, lots more things can happen. Exactly. Uh, it's going to be an interesting election cycle, and I wonder if people are going to pay attention enough because it matters so much. But we are looking to see if Ukraine can make some significant progress this, this spring and start getting their country back. It'll be very interesting to see where this thing goes. Uh, Eli Lake, thanks so much. Well, thank you. All right. Always great. one 408 7669 I'm going to try to squeeze in some calls or find out if there's more to know. Don't move. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we are back. Thanks so much for listening. Keep in mind, 48 hours, one nation, 8 o'clock, Saturday night. Great roster of guests. I'll go over it a little bit longer, a little bit later. Uh, but uh, let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Spirits Capital Corporation. Barreled whiskey is the cash cow of industry insiders. But now you, too, can invest in premium American whiskey as it ages. Go to caskdeeds.com, C-A-S-K-Deeds.com to learn more. Paid for by Spirits Capital Corporation. Maria Menounos, you know, she's one of the nicest people you ever meet, also one of the most attractive. Guess what? Secretly survived pancreatic cancer with excruciating indomitable pain while giving birth and expecting a child. She was diagnosed with stage 2 pancreatic, pancreatic cancer. I did not know this in January. Uh, they had to take out a tumor. She said, quote, I need people to know there are places that they can go to catch things early. You can't let fear get in the way. And she said, I was feeling good. Then I got slapped in the face with this. Uh, I'd scream out loud. It was unconscionable how much painful she was in. The actress uh, comes comes after a doctor discovered the golf ball-sized tumor uh, in her brain in 2017. She had surgery to remove that. Ultimately, that was benign. So I'm trying to figure out, did she have the kid? Yes. She did have it? And also, remember, she also has type 1 diabetes, so she really is a survivor. Unbelievable. Next, California's reparations panel to recommend a down payment to black residents. Really, the whole state's going broke, and now they're paying off uh, black residents when they weren't even a part of the Civil War. Unbelievable. There was no slavery in California. Economics predicted in a preliminary estimate in March that California reparations plan would cost the state $800 billion. Good luck with that. Kansas City has become the latest Democratic-run city to form reparations commission seeking repayments for black residents. Next, Elon Musk has slashed Twitter. They're down to 1,000 employees. 
So they're down. Their workforce is down 90% from when he bought it. He says they've only had one year they made a profit. It was going to go bankrupt without him. Now he's trying to save it. Next, Queen Camilla has said she's furious with Harry because, you know, in Spare, that book that he wrote, he really eviscerates her, accused her of leaking private conversations to the media as she thought to rehabilitate her image after marrying Charles. And we know with Princess Diana dying, she was looked at as the enemy. I think they're over that, but they're not over Harry. I think he's going to sit about eight rows deep. They're not going to let him wear his military uniform, which is wrong because he actually served in the military and saw combat. Uh, I just really am going to stop worrying about my own life and focus on the royals. Please remind me, Eric. All right. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.